Hey everybody, and welcome to the debut episode of Superman and Batman. I am your host, Michael Bradley, and this is a show where we will be looking at Superman and Batman team-ups from the pages of World's Finest Comics, chosen in randomly selected order. That's right, Silver Age and Bronze Age goodness featuring the Man of Steel and the Dark Knight, your two favorite heroes in one adventure together. By today's approach to comic book marketing, putting two wildly popular characters in the same story is a virtual no-brainer. But while Superman and Batman made their debuts in 1938 and 1939, respectively, and were both really big successes right out of the gate, it wasn't until much later that they began teaming up in print. Now, sure, they were appearing together on the covers of issues of World's Finest Comics since the very first issue of that title in 1941, and they had several adventures together in audio form in Adventures of Superman's radio serial between 1945 and 1948. But it wasn't until 1952 until the two had a true comic book team-up. And it was two more years after that and according to some accounts, due in large part to a uh, reduction in the book's page count before those team-ups became a regular occurrence in the pages of that comic that became synonymous with their pairing, World's Finest Comics. Though it's currently on hiatus, I host a Superman podcast, The Thrilling Adventures of Superman, and previously co-hosted a Batman podcast, Legends of the Batman. The objective of both shows was to look at each character's earliest stories and explore how they began and how they evolved. Uh, Superman and Batman are two of my favorite fictional characters, and when I was looking for a new podcasting project, looking at team-ups between those two seemed like a natural fit. Now, this show's not going to be an index type of show, where I go through each story chronologically. With 2014 being the 60th anniversary of those team-ups in World's Finest Comics and nearing the 70th anniversary of their pairing on radio, I wanted a little more freedom to jump around and look at the Superman and Batman pairings in various eras and throughout its history. So while the show does have a loose quote-unquote mandate of randomly selected issues of World's Finest Comics, we might take occasional side trips to more recent pairings as well. But Index or not, the show, like all fine podcasts, is about celebrating the characters and the medium. And I'm very glad to have you along for the ride, and I hope you will enjoy it as much as I expect that I will producing the show. All that said, though, about the show structure, I'm actually going to break that in this, the very first episode. I put a lot of thought into this pilot episode, because picking just any random issue didn't really seem like the best foot to start on. I thought it might be more appropriate to kick off the podcast by giving a little foundation, uh, kind of an introduction to the world's finest team, much the way readers at the time were introduced. So to that end, we are going to spend this episode looking at the first true comic book team-up of Superman and Batman. The Mightiest Team in the World, from Superman number 76. The issue was released around March 7, 1952, according to Mike's Amazing World of Comics, 
and it had a cover date of May-June 1952, as the book was bi-monthly at the time this came out. Um, For a little context as to where the characters and the comics industry were at that time, this was a veritable calm before the storm. When Superman debuted in 1938, the comics industry exploded. But after World War II, sales started to drop, and by the early 1950s, they had really tapered off considerably. But then the 50s happened, and throughout that decade, a number of things took place that ultimately propelled the next comics boom that started in the mid to latter half of the decade and then just shot to astronomical heights in the 60s. But when this issue came out, it was 1952. The Golden Age had almost completely come to a close with the end of All-Star Comics a little more than a year prior, and the revivals of The Flash and Green Lantern were still a few years away. And while Frederick Wortham hadn't yet published Seduction of the Innocent, the crusade against comics, um, particularly the crime and horror genres, was definitely heating up. Batman was appearing in Detective Comics and bi-monthly in his own self-titled book. Uh, His sidekick Robin also had a monthly solo feature in Star Spangled Comics, but that was about to come to an end just a few months after this issue. At this point, Batman had appeared in two 15-chapter movie serials, a short-lived newspaper strip, and had appearances, like I mentioned, on Superman's radio serial. But he hadn't really broken out and become a multimedia enterprise like Superman. By this time, The Man of Steel had been in two movie serials, a very popular radio show, a very popular newspaper strip that ran seven days a week, He had the Fleischer theatrical shorts, and there was merchandise, there were toys, there was a Superman day at the World's Fair. He was just an incredibly popular character, the likes of which we might not have seen again to this point in history. But where the Man of Steel was at this point in 1952, like the comics industry, he was in a bit of a calm, but he was right on the cusp of another huge wave of popularity. Alvin Schwartz stepped away from being the sole writer of the Superman newspaper strip in 1951, and that version of the character was beginning to transition into a time when it would have a a rotating slate of authors, and before the end of the decade, the strip would start borrowing stories from the comics and vice versa, which led to uh, a wider variety of stories being told in in the newspaper strip. more colorful and, and kind of the, the more outlandish stories like the comics were, were basically known for, or are known for, I guess I should say, today. Uh, Superman's radio serial had come to an end a year prior on March 1st, 1951, but thanks to the new medium of television, Superman was about to be introduced to a whole new audience with the debut of George Reeves's Adventures of Superman. Uh, That show started filming the summer after this issue was released, so the production of the show was already underway, with scripts being written and and, uh, the actors and actresses being cast, because the show actually premiered the September after this issue came out. Um, The popularity of that series then led to comics featuring Jimmy Olsen and eventually Lois Lane, and an expansion of the Superman mythology as a whole. 
But when this issue was released, the comics were still standing on the threshold of all that. It came out in the middle of what I've seen referred to as Superman's Lost Decade. Jerry Siegel and Joe Shuster, who created the character, had been gone from DC Comics for nearly five years at this point, and you could still feel their presence in the stories, uh, their, their, their take on the character, especially Jerry Siegel, but the character slowly was starting to evolve. Uh, Mort Weisinger was editing the titles, Action Comics and Superman, but Jack Schiff remained over the Superboy titles, Adventure Comics and Superboy, as well as World's Finest Comics. And he remained over those until about 1953 or 1954. So because the five Superman-related titles were split over two editors, there wasn't just a great deal of unity between the titles. Even though some concepts would be introduced before then, the Weisinger-led revamp or, or revitalization of Superman, with all its trappings and expansive mythology, all the things people consider part of that iconic Silver Age Superman didn't get fully underway until about 1957 or 1958, uh, spurred on in large part by, as I mentioned, the success of Adventures of Superman starring George Reeves. But it's interesting, when you take a step back and look at the comics industry and, and the character or the franchise of Superman as a whole, you can see how all these things, from the George Reeves series to the Comics Code to the introduction of new versions of Golden Age heroes, all led to what we know as the Silver Age of Comics. And you also can see how this issue, with the first print uh, or the first comic book pairing of Superman and Batman, is right there and part of the beginning of that major evolution. Uh, but enough history, because we are here to talk about comics not necessarily the history behind them. Um, But as I said, Superman 76 was released in March 1952. It has a whopping 10 cent price tag, and our cover is by Wynne Mortimer, who is no stranger to Superman or Batman at this point. And it shows our two favorite heroes leaping into frame to save Lois Lane from the roof of a burning building. Batman, the world's greatest detective, joins forces with the Man of Steel to become the mightiest team on Earth. It also builds the story as a double feature, which is uh, misleading at best since the story inside is the standard 12 pages. But still, it's Superman, it's Batman, who cares about cover copy? Let's get into the comic. Credits for this epic 12-page meeting are sadly not included in the issue. But thanks to comics historians, we know it was written by Edmund Hamilton, penciled by Kurt Swan, and inked by John Fischetti and Stan Kay. Edmund Hamilton, like Wynn Mortimer, was absolutely no stranger to Batman or Superman at this point. But the art team, they're kind of the odd men out, as none had much experience with Batman when this was published. Given that this is Superman's book, It's not surprising that a Superman team would be doing the art chores, but it is surprising they wouldn't select a team that had at least a little more experience with Batman. Now, to be fair, Swan also was still relatively new at drawing Superman at this point. Um, According to Mike's Amazing World of Comics, this is only the fourth Superman story illustrated by Swan, as he had spent most of his career to this point 
illustrating Boy Commandos, Tommy Tomorrow, and about two dozen Superboy stories. Strangely, one of the few Batman stories Kurt Swan did in his entire career was The Mastermind of Crime in Batman number 70, which was published the month before this issue. So I can't help but wonder if that wasn't used as a tryout just to see how he handled illustrating Batman before putting him on this obviously very historic story. Superman, mighty man of steel, whose superpowers have conquered catastrophes and wrecked wrongdoers. Batman, hooded foe of crime, whose flashing feats have crushed crooks for years. Are any two names in the world more famous than these? Yet, these two mighty champions of right have never met. Until now. Yes, at long last, Superman and Batman meet face to face on a voyage of peril. And strange and startling is the outcome when two legendary figures form the mightiest team in the world. Our story begins in Gotham City, where Batman and Robin round up a criminal and then return home, planning to give the Hammers of Justice a little break. Robin, a.k.a. Dick Grayson, is going to visit some relatives upstate, while Batman... Wait. Relatives upstate? Who, who are these relatives, and where were they when this eight-year-old boy's parents were tragically murdered and he had to be taken in by a complete and total, albeit Oprah-rich, stranger? Anyway, anyway, moving on. Dick is leaving, and Batman, a.k.a. Bruce Wayne, also is leaving, planning a cruise to, quote, relax and forget crime for a change. Because if you remember your Batman origin, kids, when young Bruce Wayne kneeled beside his bed and made that solemn vow, it was to spend the rest of his life warring on all criminals, or chillaxing on a boat, whichever is more interesting to me at the time. Cut to Metropolis, where we find Superman, delivering a huge fossil to the Hall of Learning, just in time to change into Clark Kent for his date with Lois Lane. Through some expository dialogue, we learn that Clark also is due for a vacation, and in fact is leaving the very next day for a cruise. Thus fate, and comic book coincidence, weaves a strange pattern to draw the two most famous champions in the world into an unprecedented adventure. The next day, when Clark boards the Verania, he's dismayed when informed by the ship's purser that because the cruise was overbooked, he'll have to share a room with one Bruce Wayne. Both men play it off, but secretly wonder what would happen should the other learn his superhero secret. At just that moment, an asbestos suit-wearing thug opens fire on a fuel tanker parked on the dock and uses the subsequent explodes I mean, oddly contained flames as cover while he steals a box of diamonds that were due to be shipped on the cruise. Lois goes in to try to get the story, but winds up getting trapped by the fire. Because really, folks, what else has she got to do? In their cabin, both Clark and Bruce note the commotion outside. Bruce turns out the light under the guise of wanting to go to sleep, which somehow makes the entire cabin pitch black, despite the fact that it's daylight outside. But using the darkness as cover, both Clark and Bruce silently and quickly change to their superhero identities. However, before they can leave the cabin, the flames outside somehow outshine the very sun itself, flooding the cabin with light and allowing each man to realize each other's startling secret. 
But there's no time to discuss the revelation, as the two heroes dash outside to save the day. Superman hoists the burning truck into the sky and uses his super breath to extinguish the fire, while Batman swings through the flames, carrying to safety a very surprised Lois, who expected to be rescued by Superman. Unable to locate the jewel thief, the heroes determine that he must have ditched his asbestos suit and stowed away on the ship. After some mutual assurances that their secrets are safe, the Man of Steel and the Dark Knight decide that to catch the thief and not risk exposing their identities, they must set sail on the Verania not only as Clark and Bruce, but also as Superman and Batman. And I want to pause and point out here, too, that Batman... Well, Batman lies to Superman, as he says that only Superman and Robin know his secret identity. But that's not exactly true, because Alfred, or Alfred Beagle, as it was still then, knew. It's a small matter, I suppose, but as a continuity nerd, it kind of bugged me. On a side note, I'm surprised more time in the story wasn't spent on the revelation of the secret identities. And it mostly owes to the different approach to storytelling 60 years ago. But this is a big deal. Even in 1952, it had to be a major point of discussion within the editorial offices of both characters. Especially since, well, spoiler alert for a 60-year-old story, it's not undone by the end of the tale. At this time, DC was very protective of the status quo of their characters. They didn't like to mess with the formula uh, for fear of losing readers. And the idea of teaming these two on regular occasions probably wasn't even on the plan at this point, given that it took two years for that to happen. Uh, Back into our tale, though, as our heroes reboard the Verania, they discover it also has another new passenger, Superman's main pain in the ass, Lois Lane. The intrepid reporter informs Superman that his friend Clark Kent also is aboard, and hey, she'll even tell him that the Man of Steel is there. This causes Superman and Batman to rush back to their cabin and quickly change clothes in order to protect their identities. And this causes a fun moment as, on the way, Superman bemoans how Lois is always causing problems like this, but Batman, clearly unfamiliar with Lois, says she seems like a charming girl. It's a very it's a very small moment, but it hints at an attempt at character that you no, don't normally associate with comics in this era. So, as Lois enters the cabin, Clark feigns seasickness, and Bruce says that he should stay there and take care of the patient. Thinking that there is, you know, nothing peculiar whatsoever about a total stranger offering to take care of Clark while he's sick, Lois just storms out fuming about what a, you know... A weakling Clark is. Which, if you're unfamiliar with Superman stories from the Silver Age, that's kind of her thing. But with their secret identities alibis confirmed, Superman and Batman set about figuring a way to keep Lois out of their hair so they can catch the Diamond Thief. And it's right here that you stop and realize that most of the rest of the issue could have been avoided if these two guys would just, I don't know, have a conversation with Lois... I have read thousands of Superman and Superman-related stories, and I know that Lois Lane, as portrayed in the Golden and Silver Ages, is a metric ton of crazy. But would it kill them to have a simple conversation? Well, maybe so, because our heroes devise another plan. 
Later, on the deck, Superman <laughs> Superman convinces Batman to make Lois believe he's falling in love with her. Superman will then pretend to be jealous, which will keep Lois too distracted to snoop around. Which makes perfect sense to me, since the possibility of romance is more important to a woman than anything. Right? Little do our heroes know, however, that Lois has overheard their scheme and plans to teach Superman a lesson of her own. She then proceeds to flirt with Batman, sending Superman away to stop the boat from rocking. And that didn't exactly come out as planned. You see, the boat's not rocking because she's flirting, it's rocking because it's a boat in the ocean and boats rock with the waves. <clears throat> so while Superman steadies the boat by lifting it out of the water, he uses his x-ray vision to survey the ship and look for the diamonds. His search comes up empty, but he does see a man carrying a pistol and identification cards reading John Smilter, electrical engineer. Batman investigates and deduces, based only on the fact that the guy is wearing leather-soled shoes, that he must be the thief. Unfortunately, without the diamonds, there's no way to prove it. We then get a full page, and for the most part completely unnecessary, scene that occurs later that night as Superman and Batman perform various stunts to entertain the cruise passengers. It's a cute scene and, and plays up the Batman-Lois flirtation angle, but it's, it's really unnecessary to the overall plot about the mystery of who stole the diamonds and, and the bigger matter of ba Superman and Batman teaming up for the very first time. But, you know, like I said, it's a cute scene. But once that's done, we seamlessly slip back into the story as Smelter plans his getaway via a helicopter that's coming to pick him up. He also plans to sabotage the ship to prevent Superman from following and take a hostage just in case. And I think we can all tell what's coming here, right? Sure enough, shortly after, as the ship heads into a storm, the captain discovers the boat's turbines have failed. And as the copter arrives, Lois stumbles her way into the obligatory role as hostage. Once again, what else has she got to do? And Smelter starts to make his escape. Unfortunately, needing to tend to the more pressing need of towing the ship to safety, Superman can't go after the crook. Batman says he'd do it, but suddenly remembers that he's not actually a bat and can't fly. But the Man of Steel has an idea. He tells the Dark Knight to climb on his shoulder, and then, using his free hand, Superman throws Batman at the fleeing helicopter. Yes, you heard that right. More than two decades before the move was popularized in the X-Men books, Superman used Batman for a fastball special. Through the miracles of comic book science, Batman lands on the side of the helicopter, somehow not breaking every bat bone in his body. When Smelter proves unwilling to simply shoot the Dark Knight, the pilot attempts to throw him off the airship, but the Dark Knight climbs inside, knocking the two thugs head together like coconuts, and apparently landing the copter himself, we're not really told. Some time has passed. After Superman has towed the boat safely back to port, our heroes meet, and Batman reveals the diamonds were hidden inside the lead bullets of Smelter's gun, a fact that he guessed when Smelter's refused to shoot him. Diamonds recovered and crooks turned over to police, Superman and Batman take their leave. As the Varania starts its homeward journey, Clark and Bruce resurface on the ship, a fact that doesn't exactly go unnoticed by Lois, 
which causes yet another problem for our heroes. That night, Superman leaps from the ship, flying Batman back to Gotham and letting him make an appearance and be noticed by the news in order to cover his identity. But even though Batman's identity is safe, Clark is still in trouble. The next morning, Bruce tells Clark that when the ship nears port, he should fly ahead and greet the docking ship as Superman. He does and meets Lois as she disembarks a ship with... Clark Kent. And later, in a secluded alley, the so-called Clark Kent removes his disguise, revealing that he is really Bruce Wayne, and the Man of Steel thanks him for helping maintain his secret. However, even though their secret identities are safe, they realize they still don't know who Lois prefers, Superman or Batman, and decide to settle it by seeing who she'd rather go to dinner with. But when our heroes return to the dock, they find Lois walking off arm-in-arm with... Robin, as the teen wonder takes the reporter to dinner. Why Robin is suddenly on the scene, how he arrived, and how he struck up a conversation with Lois Lane that resulted in going to dinner are all mysteries for the ages. But overall, this is a really fun story. Through their 60 years of team-ups, there have been really good Superman and Batman stories, and there have been really bad Superman and Batman stories. I'm sure we will come into both over the course of this podcast, but this one, this one falls into the really good category. Yes, it's goofy in places. Yes, it heavily relies on coincidence. But for a proto-Silver Age story, this is wonderful. You've got the heroes working to solve a mystery, a real mystery, not one of the fake, you know, Scooby-Doo style mysteries, but a real mystery of what happened to the diamonds and the thief. There's great banter between Superman and Batman, and Batman and Lois. At times, as I said earlier, giving hints at deeper character than you would normally see in stories from this era. It was a really, I think it was a really wise decision to exclude Robin from most of the story, as well as most of uh, Superman's supporting cast, like Jimmy Olsen and Perry White. Batman and Robin, throughout the Golden and Silver Ages, tended to be joined at the hip, and while I like the character of Robin, I'm glad this first team-up could be solely focused on Superman and Batman. It's too historically important to clutter it up with the family characters. I mean, even though, like I said earlier, just a bit ago, I I doubt they were planning on regular team-ups between these two, but teaming these two, even at at that time, it was a big deal. And I'm really glad they decided to focus on just the two main heroes. And I love that they learned each other's identities, and more importantly, that it wasn't undone. It would have been very easy, very easy, to write this in such a way that it was undone by the final panel. And DC was notorious for that kind of thing. You tease the reader with some big status quo changing reveal, and then pull the football away at the end of the story. But they didn't hear, and good on them. But most of all, this story is Superman. This story is Batman. Not a hoax, not a dream, not an imaginary story. This story is Superman and Batman teaming up for the very first time ever. And despite the goofiness that often comes with stories from this era, they knocked it clean out of the park. Artistically as well, this story is just top-notch. Kurt Swan 
is one of the preeminent Superman pencilers. And even this early in his time with the character, you already can see that he's got a really good grasp on how to make the character look good. I mean, all the characters look good, in fact. They, they, they just all look great. And one thing that stood out to me is that Clark Kent and Bruce Wayne look like different people. Clark's glasses should not be the only distinguishing characteristic between Clark and Bruce. Swan renders them with different facial shapes, hairstyles, even their bodies, uh, their, their posture and the way they, they carry themselves are different. And that's really important when you're dealing with two characters who, you, you know, it, it would be really easy to make them look like pretty much the same person. The art throughout the entire story is just really dynamic, and I have very, very little negative to say about it. Um, all around, just a really, really great story and a fantastic beginning to the Superman-Batman team. Um, right now, we're going to take a quick break, play a couple promos for shows that you really ought to listen to, and then we'll be back for the second segment of the show. The Bronze Age of Comics, an era largely ignored as far as Superman goes, and an era that some consider to still be part of the Silver Age. Sure, a lot of people know about the Kryptonite Nevermore storyline, where all the Kryptonite on Earth is turned to iron and Clark Kent goes from a newspaper reporter to a TV reporter. Then there are the Alan Moore stories, for the man who has everything and whatever happens to the man of tomorrow. But in an era that lasted 15 years, surely there's more to the Bronze Age than that, right? Well, my name is Charlie Niemeyer, and every other week, I shine the spotlight on this long-overlooked era of Superman in the Bronze Age. Featuring such stories as the return of Jonathan Kent, two meetings with the Amazing Spider-Man, the Phantom Zone miniseries, the enlarging of Krypton, and more. Plus, J. David Weider also joins in to take a look at Superboy's Bronze Age adventures. So join in the fun at www.supermanandthebronzeage.com and www.supermanpodcastnetwork.com. Wow, I'm really glad I decided to pony up and take my wife to Italy for her birthday. The food, the sights, the atmosphere, it's all just so perfect. <sighs> Too bad I had to ask if there was a comic book shop located at the Vatican. Uh, maybe it wasn't the brightest thing to do on her birthday, but... Granted, I'm certain I've done things way more foolish than that. Good afternoon. Gah! Where did you come from, and who the heck are you? My name is Dufo Manzo, and where I come from is none of your concern. What is of your concern is that I have an offer to make of you. An offer that you should not refuse. Uh, okay. What is it? I have listened to your podcasts, and it just so happens that I am in the podcasting business myself. Someday I will ask a favor of you, one that I hope you will repay to me in good faith. When you do so, you will become a part of my family, and your show will prosper along with it. Oh, that sounds great. What do I need to do? You will know when the time is right. Until then, I wish you and your lovely wife the happiest of times in my fair country. Uh, oh, okay. Cool. Some time has passed. And that does it for another episode of Just One of the Guys. Thanks, everyone, for listening, and I'll catch you all next week. Bravo. Bravo. Gah! Bravo. 
How, how the hell did you find me? And how did you get in my house? Do not worry yourself with such trivial matters. I have seen your work with this podcast, and I have come to accept the favor that is owed to me. Uh, but you never said what you wanted from me. That is true, so let me restate it now. Wait, what? I have started up a brand new podcasting venture entitled Two True Freaks. I am setting them up with their own website, twotruefreaks.com, and I am gathering a podcast such as yours that have gained my favor to become a part of the Two True Freaks podcast network. I will do the honor of putting the Just One of the Guys on the Two True Freaks network, and in return, our debt will be settled. Oh, okay. Hey, wait, what debt? Do you accept my offer? Uh, sure. I mean, does this mean I'll get paid for the show finally? No. Oh, okay. Well, does it mean that I'll get some cannoli? Of course. The Demanzo family originated cannoli. In fact, we are known the world over for our stuffing of creamy fillings in the tubes. Come check out Just One of the Guys every Friday at Two True Freaks. Those two promos you just heard were for Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern podcast hosted by Sean Engel, and Superman in the Bronze Age, hosted by Charlie Niemeyer. I want to give a special shout-out and thank you to both Sean and Charlie. Uh, They both happily played Guinea Pig when I sent them an early beta version of this episode. I have since re-recorded most of what they heard, But they both listened to the first take and gave me some really great feedback, and I think the show is much better for it, and I I really appreciate them taking time out to to listen to the show and and respond to it. Uh, Both guys produce really excellent podcasts. I'm honored to not only have been a guest on both shows a couple times, but to be able to call them both friend, and I really do want to encourage you to check out both shows. I listen to a lot of podcasts. And theirs are both shows that not only do I really look forward to each and every episode, but they typically always go to the very top of the listening queue whenever they come in. So please, 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 if you're not already listening to either one, please take some time and, and give them a try. I can, I can guarantee that you're not going to be disappointed. The Mightiest Team in the World from Superman number 76 is a story that Anyone who considers himself or herself a serious comic book fan or student of comic book history needs to read. It's not the best told story in the history of comics. It's not the best illustrated story in the history of comics. But by the very nature of it being the first team-up between comics' most popular and well-known characters... That makes it iconic despite any weakness in the story, which really aren't too many in number. Uh, If you want to read this and can't afford an original issue, it's been reprinted all over the place. First in Superman from the 30s to the 70s, which was a very popular hardcover volume that came out uh, several years ago. Then in World's Finest Archives Volume 1, They did a Millennium Edition of the entire issue, which reprinted not just this story, but the backup features and ads and all. And then it was in Superman, Batman, The Greatest Stories Ever Told, Trade Paperback, and Showcase Presents World's Finest, Volume 1, 
trade paperback, which is where I read it for uh, this particular episode. It was also reprinted in World's Finest Comics number 179 from 1968. So I guess kind of indirectly I did stick with the that so-called loose mandate of the show, you know, looking at issues of World's Finest Comics. Um, if you want to hear other podcasters take on the story, you are definitely in luck because being such a, a famous story, it has been looked at on a variety of high-quality podcasts. Billy Hogan looked at it on an early episode of the Superman Fan Podcast. It was covered by father and son duo Andrew and Michael Leyland on episode 7 of volume 2 of Hey Kids Comics as part of their Happy Birthday Superman series. And Bill Jourdain looked at it on episode 58 of his Golden Age of Comic Books podcasts. Um, unfortunately, Bill's not putting out episodes of his show anymore, but I think you can find... I think you can still find old episodes at goldenagecomics.org and possibly on iTunes. Um, shifting gears, because I'll be hopping around to various eras and years, I definitely want to take a little time each episode to look at what else is in the issues and, and other books coming out at the time. The Mightiest Team in the World is the lead story in Superman number 76, but that issue also includes two other Superman stories. First is The Misfit Manhunter by Bill Finger, Wayne Boring, and Stan Kay, where Superman helps out a young man wanting to become an FBI agent. And second is Mrs. Superman by Bill Woolfolk and Al Plastino. And here, Lois tries to get her roommate, Lorraine Jennings, who makes her first and only appearance in this story, to marry Clark Kent so that Superman will propose to her. The Man of Steel learns of this, what I think can be politely called a harebrained scheme, and sets out to turn the tables, and of course, hijinks ensue. Uh, both of those stories were reprinted in the Millennium Edition, as I mentioned just a minute ago, but haven't gotten any other U.S. reprints that I know about. Uh, not much else to talk about in the issue itself, just your basic selection of, you know, Henry Boltonoff gag strips and ads for candy, uh, Daisy Air Rifles, hair tonic and the like, basically all the stuff a growing boy needed in 1952. Those of you who were regular listeners to my Superman podcast, The Thrilling Adventures of Superman, you also might be interested to know that the Superman of America Club uh, continues even this far into the character's existence. And this issue has a quarter-page ad for that, complete with Superman's secret message. Um, but now, if we head on over to Mike's Amazing World of Comics at mikesamazingworld.com, we can jump into the time machine and see what else was coming out around this time. Unfortunately, there's not a lot going on. As I said at the, at the top of the show, this was kind of a, a lull period for the superhero game, and, and really comics as a whole. So the racks were filled with a lot of genre books and titles based off radio properties. There was no issue of Batman this month, but Batman appeared in Detective Comics number 183, while Superman appeared in Action Comics number 168, and both heroes appeared in separate features in World's Finest Comics number 58. Uh, the only other book that jumped out at me was Sensation Comics number 109, which features a Jim Mooney, Frank Giacoya cover 
the concept of which was used as the basis for Justice League of America number 10, featuring the fantastic fingers of Felix Faust. Or possibly Faust. I, I was never real clear on how you pronounce that, and I've heard it pronounced both ways. Next episode, we will start with our regular format as I pull a random issue of World's Finest Comics and take a look at the adventures of the world's finest heroes. Be sure to write in and let me know what you think of the show. While I will be going with the loose mandate of randomly selected issues, if there's a specific issue you want me to cover, or a specific Superman and Batman team-up outside of World's Finest Comics that you want me to cover, write in and let me know. Uh, Tell me your thoughts on the show and this story, your history with Superman and Batman, or, or just say hi. I really want to hear from listeners, so get to emailing. But regardless of whether you write in or not, I want to thank you very much for joining me on this inaugural episode. Please tell your friends about the show. Uh, Pass the word and and let folks know. I I think word of mouth is the best type of promotion a show can get. And if you like the show, please tell people about it. But that's it for this time. Thank you again, and I will talk to you later. Goodbye. listening to Superman and Batman, hosted by me, Michael Bradley. Feedback can be sent to michael at greatcrypton.com. I love hearing from listeners, so be sure to send your comments, questions, and other feedback, and I will likely read that on a future episode. Show notes, information, and back episodes can be found at greatcrypton.com. Be sure to follow the show via Facebook and Twitter, and subscribe via iTunes or RSS feed so that you never miss an episode. If you subscribe via iTunes, be sure to leave a review. Not only does it help others find the show, but I'd love to read that in a future episode as well. Superman and Batman is a proud member of the Superman Podcast Network, home to many great Superman-related podcasts. Be sure to pay them a visit at supermanpodcastnetwork.com. Superman was created by Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster. Batman was created by Bob Kane and Bill Finger, and both characters are copyright DC Comics. For more about Superman's creators, be sure to visit my blog, Siegel and Schuster Mythmakers, at greatcrypton.com slash Schuster, where I commemorate the lives, works, and legacies of Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster. I want to thank you again very much for listening and invite you to come back next time for another episode of Superman and Batman. Featuring your two favorite heroes in one podcast together. The closing song for this episode was Foreigners Feels Like the First Time from the 1977 self-titled debut album. If you like this or other music heard in the show, support the artist by buying the music. And the best way to do that is by visiting twotruefreaks.com. Click on the banner in the upper left corner of the site and be redirected to amazon.com. 
buy an MP3 or physical copy of the song, and Two True Freaks will get a little kickback on every purchase. So not only will you be getting good tunes, but you'll be helping out some of the hardest working folks in podcasting. And best of all, it won't cost you anything extra.